As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. It's your host, Chrissy Benson. First, I'd like to send some love to our two newest supporters, Motria and Zena. Thank you for supporting the Vegan Posse podcast. If you'd like to become a monthly supporter too, click on support this podcast. Every little bit goes a long way to getting the word out about veganism, justice, and love for all sentient beings, including us humans. And you can also check out my novel, Marrying Myself, by me, Christine Melanie Benson. It's women's fiction with a vegan twist, a surprise ending, and a cast of characters that by the end of the novel feel like your imaginary friends. Check it out on Amazon or anywhere else and find out why it's been called the anti-romance romance. Finally, we've got a very special event coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee. On March 23rd, 2023, at 6 o'clock p.m., Dr. Will Tuttle, author of the best-selling book and my personal vegan Bible, The World's Peace Diet, will be giving a talk at Nashville Sunflower Cafe on the subject of healing our world, a deeper look at food. I'll be giving an introductory talk on why it's time for a self-love revolution. Come one, come all, and bring your omnivore friends for an evening of fun, fellowship, delicious vegan food, and plenty of food for thought. And now, on to our episode. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Dr. Will Tuttle. A vegan since 1980, Dr. Will Tuttle is an award-winning speaker, educator, musician, and author of the best-selling book, The World's Peace Diet. A former Zen monk, Dr. Tuttle holds a PhD in education from UC Berkeley, where his dissertation, The Role of Intuition in Education, was nominated for the Best Dissertation Award in 1988. Dr. Tuttle has worked extensively exploring and promoting intuition development, nonviolent living, meditation, healing music, creativity, holistic health, animal liberation, and cultural evolution. Traveling globally with his spouse, Madeline, a visionary artist from Switzerland, he presents lectures and concerts of original uplifting piano music, often accompanied by Madeline's watercolor paintings and silver flute. Dr. Tuttle is the editor of Circles of Compassion, and Buddhism and Veganism, author of Your Inner Islands and other books, and recipient of the Courage of Conscience Award and the Empty Cages Prize. He has appeared in many radio, television, print, and online interviews, as well as documentary films, including Cowspiracy, A Prayer for Compassion, Hope, What You Eat Matters, Vegan, Everyday Stories, and Animals and the Buddha. Since 1985, Dr. Tuttle has delivered 4,000-plus 
live audience presentations encouraging compassion and vegan living in over 50 countries worldwide and in all 50 U.S. states. Dr. Will Tuttle, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? I thank you so much, Chrissy. I really appreciate what you're doing and I'm looking forward to it, yes. Great. All right, I've got a lot of questions for you ranging from food to spirituality to relationships to politics to personal details. So let's jump in. Where did you grow up and what sorts of foods did you eat growing up? And did you ever think about the relationship between animals and our food? Right. Yeah, when I was a kid, you know, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts back in the 1950s, basically early 60s. And I was eating the usual meals, more or less, I guess you would say, of, of meat, dairy products, and eggs. It was the milkman would come, and then the eggman would come, and we would go to the store, and, and we would buy f some foods. We would stop a lot at farm stands. It was kind of a rural area, and we would pick a lot of our own blueberries and things in season. And uh, we didn't do much gardening, actually. Our, our, our family didn't. My father owned a chain of newspapers, actually just one newspaper, but as time went on, he got more and more. And uh, my mother was uh, very uh, interested in cooking and making healthy meals. But like everybody, she thought you needed to eat plenty of meat to get protein and dairy to get calcium. So I, I lived on that. And I wasn't really aware directly of the relationship between food and animals more than most kids, I don't think. It was really when I went away to a summer camp when I was 13 that I uh, caught, you know, I, I was learned how to catch my own chicken. We all did. And we, I killed the chicken with my axe and we would uh, put them through the scalding tank and we would eat the chickens. And I also uh, participated in the killing of a cow every year. We would do that, a dairy cow who wasn't giving enough milk, even though she was only five years old. By that point, she was worn out. So when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, I started participating in those, and I definitely understood um, by then, of course, we all do, but I participated in it. But by then, I was really uh, completely uh, lost. I mean, I, I just had gone through that many years of indoctrination and I knew that this was the right thing to do because God gave us these animals. It was sort of this, the the, the typical story. The narrative is so powerful. And uh, I never met a vegetarian. I never heard really hard of the word. I remember when, when I was about seven, I asked my mother and she said, well, there are vegetarians, but uh, don't worry, you'll, you'll never meet one. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of how it was for me as a kid growing up. And uh, it was really uh, only when I went away to college that I started actually hearing about vegetarians. I never met one, uh, but I started to hear about it. I started to think about it a little bit, that it would might be uh, better for animals, you know, but it was kind of far away still. And it was only when I left home right after college with my brother and we started walking uh, like a, like a Indian sadhus, you know, they, we had, that was kind of our, uh, our ideal was these people that just devoted themselves 100% to a spiritual enlightenment and not really care about food or anything, just focus on the most important thing. And uh, then we started uh, back, and this was back in 1975, and so by that time there were some hippie communes around, scattered here and there, and we found them. We found some in West Virginia, Kentucky, and then in Tennessee, the big one, the farm, 
which was the largest in the world at that point, and they were all vegetarians. And so we that, that was it. I never ate meat in my life, and I was about 20. I just turned 22. I guess I was 22 at that point. And that was because at the farm they really demonstrated this, they modeled it, and they explained the, the rationale. Uh, but before that, when I was younger, uh, I loved animals. We had a, you know, we had a pet dog, and uh, I never hunted. Some, a lot of our neighbors did, and I, uh, my father didn't like cruelty to animals. He really was mm. opposed to that, and we never went fishing much either because of that as well. So I never really did much killing of animals myself. I did a little bit of fishing, but I, I didn't really like it. I kind of liked just the idea of casting, you know, <laughs> but the actual killing of the I never liked killing animals. Uh, so I never, I never did. I never hunted or, I, you know, I caught a few fish by chance, but it wasn't something I really liked to do. So for me, I think when I, when I had to kill the chicken and, and we participated in killing the cow, it, I hated it really. I didn't like it. And, uh, and then when I heard about the idea you could just eat without hurting animals and I saw all these people were doing it, then I have never eaten meat since 1975. And a few years later in 1980, I made the connection to dairy and eggs. And so I've been a vegan, like you say, since 1980. Wow. And what about your brother? Did the farm have the same impact on your brother? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, my good my good old brother. You know, he uh, we were both we did both. Yeah, we both did the same thing. We we were both vegetarians. We took slightly different paths in a sense. After being at, at this meditation center in Alabama, a Zen center for quite a few years, I kind of continued on in living in meditation centers in Atlanta and then in San Francisco. Eventually, became a Zen monk in Korea. He went more into uh, working. In a you know for for a computer company, but then he uh, left that and went down to South America and be studied with the shamans and he now leads ayahuasca healing or ayahuasca retreats uh, in South America. He married a um, a woman from Ecuador. I he is pretty vegan friendly, but he's not an actual vegan like I am. Like I'm a vegan activist. Mm -hmm. He's um, he's great to talk to. We get along fine. And he's mostly, I think he was on his own. He would basically eat as a vegan. He, he, but he's uh, in a, in a uh, he, they have a, a center, you know, they have a restaurant. And I guess he and his wife, especially his wife, they feel like, you know, we've got to have some fish and chicken for the people. And so he does, so he's not con that consequent about it. Uh, my sister, she's the other, the third person uh, in the family, and uh, she's two years younger than my brother, who's two years younger than me. She's a vegan, so she she um, oh, okay. she she uh, kind of took took the uh, it took her quite a while. I mean, she was a, a in the fundamentalist Christian tradition, and uh, I think after about fifteen years of me talking about how great it is to uh, just let go of that and and how really it's better spiritually. She uh, she sent me an email and said that Jesus came to her and told her to go vegan, and she's been doing it now for a long time, probably over twenty years. Wow! A, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. That's similar to the setup in my family because I too am the eldest, and mm. it is me and my brother who's the youngest who are both vegan, and our uh -huh. sister, the middle child, is not. <laughs> Right. It's not interesting. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. funny. <laughs> so a, a number of well-known historic intellectuals like Henry David Thoreau, w Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Louisa May Alcott also spent time in Concord. 
And what people may not know is that many of them were against eating and exploiting animals. Do you feel a kinship with some of those historical figures? Yes. You know, for me, actually, uh, I, I went away to college and I was going to take over my father's newspaper. I was mainly t uh, taking courses in business administration and also in English uh, writing and literature. But I really, it was during the Vietnam War era, and as I did more delving into the conquered transcendentalists, especially Thoreau and Emerson, a little bit into uh, Alcott, um, I found they were very interesting. I mean, they, they were bringing uh, this idea of a, um, a spiritual uh, path of liberation. Uh, and it really, really, in many ways, led me to Zen and Buddhism, to yoga, uh, to Walt Whitman. Well, I, th I thought Walt, Walt Whitman was a fantastic poet who really spoke to me at a very deep level. His love of nature, his sense of freedom and liberation and mysticism, I just loved it. When I, I read Leaves of Grass, I just devoured it. I loved mm. that. And he was very much, uh, uh, you know, a, an admirer of, of Emerson. And so when I read Emerson's essays on self-reliance and Thoreau's Walden and, and the other, a lot of other facile disobedience, all those things uh, really lit, like lit a fire in me. And that was what, that's what propelled us into looking at more into uh, the teachings of the great sages of India and China and then leaving home, just not, not, you know, deciding not to take over my father's business, to just leave everything behind and focus on spiritual awakening, which is really what uh, Emerson and Thoreau had kind of indicated in their uh, writings. And Thoreau had somewhat exemplified by sort of leaving the world and going out to Walden Pond and building a cabin and, and just sort of being out there and spending a lot of time in nature and meditating and uh, trying to think deeply about reality and questioning everything in his society and questioning war. And so I found that to be very interesting and very inspiring. And I, so I think it had a big impact, actually. Interesting. Yeah, in my first episode of The Vegan Posse, I actually include a quote from Thoreau where he talks about fishing and it's something to the effect that every time I fish, I feel it would have been better had I not fished. <laughs> so right. he echoes some of the same sentiments that you seem to feel when you fished. Exactly. Yeah. No, fishing for me was uh, one of the things that, that really made a big impact. Not that I did it very much, but I remember when my brother and I were on our walk, uh, we gave away all our money. We, had, we only had like a couple hundred dollars when we started just as, as an emergency. And then we just decided we didn't want to have any money at all. We just wanted to have nothing, just be completely with nothing. And I remember we did something which I, I'm not necessarily proud of, but we, we were in this, we were in Pennsylvania at that point, and we were walking south, and we, we had like these four $50 bills. That was all we had uh, that we just kind of had a, kept aside in case of an emergency. And... Uh, we flushed it down the toilet. I remember of this, <laughs> of, this, uh, of this place where we were staying. I think it was in a the church. They were letting us sleep on the floor or something. We thought, we don't need money, and money's not going to help anybody really anyway. Let's just go. And so anyway, so um, I remember uh, a few, maybe a week later, we were, we were 
we needed, we were walking and, and this fellow uh, we met somehow, he said, oh yeah, we, he said, you boys, you're, you're welcome to stay. I've got a, a little cabin out by a creek. You're welcome to stay there over the night. And, uh, and so we thought, all right. And then we went on the next day. We were just walking south to keep ahead of the cold weather. It was in October. And so we were in this little cabin and there was no food at all, nothing. And we were hungry. And so I, we went out and we tried foraging for some wild carrots and some mil milkweed roots or whatever and it wasn't wasn't much but the, he had two fishing poles uh, and I grabbed one of the fishing poles and I went out and I caught a couple of fish in this little cre uh, creek and I remember bringing them back and I had this jacket that had a pocket and I had kind of just put them in the pocket and thought that they would be dead by the time uh, you know in a half an hour or whatever and I was going to then cook them and eat them and so a half an hour when they were still alive they were still kind of flopping around and so I had to kill them you know because I was ready to cook them and they didn't die easily it was a really very vivid memory and how I had to like literally slam them onto the floor to finally kill them and I just remember thinking so strongly you know here we are meditating for spiritual awakening, working for world peace, trying to break out of all of this violence and, and, uh, and the, um, the delusion that so many people are in of war and conflict. And here I am just pulling this poor fish out of the water, slamming him down on the, or her down onto the floor. And there's got to be a better way, you know, but I still at that point, you know, felt like, like well, we got to get the protein, you know. <laughs> so that's why it was. I think I was really primed when we when we met these communities of vegetarians and vegans. They were really vegans, actually. At the farm, they didn't eat dairy or eggs too. And uh, but we we everybody called each other vegetarian because no one even knew the word vegan back then. Mm. And um, so I think uh, I can really resonate with what Thoreau said because there is a feeling of, to me, of shame. You know, this, this animal's minding her own business, not hurting anybody, and we just kind of intrude into her life and with a horrible thing, this barbed hook, and rip her out of, you know, it's like such a terrible thing to do to somebody else. And uh, I'm so glad, you know, that I figured that out. <laughs> yeah, why, is, why do you think that fishing is considered different from hunting? You know, there are a lot of people who never in a million years would be interested in hunting, but people seem to think about fishing of this as this idyllic, you know, Yeah, well, I think there's two reasons. Right, yeah, fishing, I think, is two reasons. One is it's much more passive, you know, you're, and it's something that's sort of a, the grandfather, it's very grandfatherly, you know, or uncle, you know, there's that sense of, of um, it's kind of this avuncular thing, you know, you just go out and you sit uh, quietly in nature and you just be there and you have your fishing pole in the water and uh, you, you're, very, you're not you're not harming anybody. You're just you know just putting it in and and uh, whereas hunting you're you know you're really out there to track and kill an animal you know so uh, and, th and the other thing of course is fish are are seen as much more other than say a deer or even a rabbit or you know so I think uh, a lot of people say well they're cold blooded you know as if that means they don't have any uh, nerves or something like that <laughs> which they certainly do. But they're just—they just—they don't smile. They're—they're they're covered with scales, and they don't—they don't vocalize in any way. So I think it's kind of easy for people to look at them more as objects, 
and mm-hmm. to think that it's just a, a sport and, and then of course if they're eating them they justify the eating because they say well you know I'm not killing a cow or a pig I'm you know just a, just a fish you know that kind of a thing lower on the it's like a lower uh, level animal so I think all those things um, go into it but but really from my point of view they're these are sentient beings that are fully sentient and suffer probably just as vividly uh, as dogs and cats and uh, it's really our own narrative that separates us and kind of blinds us to what we're actually doing in this right. situation. Right. I think you're absolutely right about that. And just the fact, too, that we as humans, since we can't live underwater, we can't spend a lot of time around fishes. So we can't really get to know right. them in the same way that we can hang out with cows and pigs and, you know, chickens and see what they're like. Well, that's true, you know, but I, I have to say, though, there's been a few times when I've really spent some time with fish in various places, in lakes or streams or in the ocean, and I got to know them a little bit, and mm. I remember this one place I went every day with a, that had fit, and the fish would always be around, and I, you know, they almost let you touch them, they, they, they mm. get really close, and this one time, I, and then it was time to leave, I remember going there, and the fish weren't there. It was this little, like a swimming hole in a, in a river. And then um, I bumped my knee on a rock and I, I'm like, oh, it kind of hurt. And then right then all the fish came, you know, it's like, <laughs> they just emerged from I don't know where. It's like they all wanted uh-huh. to say goodbye. Now, I've had a, quite a, I've had a few interesting experiences. I remember another time I was in the Florida Keys and going, doing quite a bit of um, snorkeling there. And they have these lobster pots and crab pots out and I would go, and um, dive down and then kind of open them up and let the crabs out or the lobsters out, let them go free. And this one time, it was kind of hard to do, so I didn't do it that much because they're, they're very heavy. It's actually very difficult to do, but I did it a few times. And I remember um, this one time I, I let this lobster go and it was late in the afternoon, the sun was setting in the west and the lobster uh, got out of the, out of the lobster tr- uh, trap and started walking along the uh, the bottom of the water and the, and went by this rock and right at that point another lobster came out and then they walked together mm. into the sunset <laughs> it was so cute <laughs> really they really kind of went, went kind of scooting along and i and i came up and the sun was like right there you know over the as the sun sun was setting and i think these animals do have relationships and companionships in ways we you know we probably don't understand or recognize oh, but for sure yeah have, you may be a, familiar with an organization called fish feel have you heard oh of yeah that yeah one? sure yeah mary finelli yeah yeah yeah, I know her. yeah. and and yeah. jonathan balcom too the animal behaviorist right. he's written a lot about fishes right yeah, and, Sylvia Earle has written about it quite a bit. The groupers and a lot of other fish are, have very distinct personalities, like dogs and cats that we think right. they do. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. From yeah, what I've seen. Yeah. yeah. And I remember being at an animal rights conference and Ingrid Newkirk was telling a story. Ingrid Newkirk of, of PETA um, was right. telling a story about um, a, <laughs> some restaurant where they were dipping live crabs in batter you know, to, to fry them, you know, fresh and, and about this one, I I forget why she was there to witness this, but a crab who had been dipped in batter was, you know, covered and dripping in this batter, scrambling to try to get away. (laughs) And that image just stayed with me. Yeah. 
Um, so going back to Concord, because I, I just find Concord a fascinating place. And in fact, my boyfriend um, grew up there in part as well. And I just love the history. So in the 1850s, Concord was a center of anti-slavery activity. Can you talk about some of the similarities and also some of the differences between human slavery and what's happening with non-human animals in our food system? Well, it's basically uh, three things that we do with the animals, like the, the three main things. And the first one is slavery, right? I mean, the, the, the primary characteristic of animal agriculture, which we're doing to, to billions of animals, um, is that we take away their freedom. They're, we enslave them and they're born into slavery. So we don't, it's not like we go out into the wild and then we catch them and then we put them into a cage. Because if we did that, they would be really fighting to get out of it all the time. Um, but, they're, you know, but now they're born into it. But even then they're fighting to get out of it very often or they're, they're just miserable. So the slavery is the foundation uh, of the whole thing. But actually it's interesting because the, the slavery is only so that we can kill them. So it's kind of like a canned mm -hmm. hunt kind of a situation, you know, where we're going to hunt them, but we don't well, we'll make it easy. We just, we just have them born into slavery, then we can easily shoot them and kill them. But the thing that's interesting is that at a deeper level, you couldn't have either one of those without the third thing, which is impregnating them against their will. Mm -hmm. So you have the sexual abuse of female slaves, slave animals, who then are forced to give birth to babies that are born into slavery. So it's sexual abuse is the foundation really, and, of, and then the slavery and then the killing. And, uh, but the whole idea underlying everything is that these are objects, they're not beings. And, and I think that's the, the critical point is that when we human beings started to, when we shifted from hunting free living animals to owning them, to herding them, that was a great revolution. And I think it was a, a, a revolution. I, I call it the herding revolution. It transformed our entire society. And it was not in a good way. I mean, it, we crossed a line, I think, when we did that on some level. And uh, we had to you know, then justify our behavior. And we, so you see religious scriptures always talking about how God wants us to sacrifice animals to him. And he, you know, he sort of wants us to do this. And I think it's, and, and, and the idea of the good shepherd taking care of the sheep when in actual fact, the shepherd has not, is not good when it comes to <laughs> right. takes care animals. of the sheep only so that the sheep can yeah. later be killed. <laughs> oh, which he's going to, he's going to, he's going to hang them upside down and cut their throats, every single one of them. And, and that's the whole point of the whole thing. So uh, that's, that's the underlying uh, reality that we're born into, and that has a 10,000-year uh, momentum. Unfortunately, that's why it's so difficult to stop it. It's just got the, every institution uh, is basically conditioned and supports that. And in my research for the World Peace Diet, I realized that it wasn't too long after we started enslaving animals that we started enslaving other human beings, and it was mainly as a result of war. War, the oldest word for war was gavia, the, the desire for more cows. And uh, so it, it was a whole, the whole idea was to just try to get more land, get more uh, wealth. And wealth was uh, livestock like sheep, goats, and cows primarily. And whoever lost the war would lose their livestock. But with time, whoever lost the war would actually become slave, very often would become property also of the victors, just like the animals were. And so they, human beings, started to be reduced to being mere property also. 
And that's one of the really sobering things I've discovered in my research is that every single thing we've ever done to animals, sooner or later, we've done it to each other uh, in some way or another. And uh, so I think uh, the human slavery that is still very widespread, it didn't end in 1865, and we have a tremendous amount of slavery going on right now, probably more than ever. Uh, and underlying it, we have more animal slavery than ever, too. I mean, we're, we're enslaving billions of animals. And it's a system that they feed each other. So I, I, I really believe that we'll never end human slavery until we end animal slavery, because animal slavery is something where, as a society, we're eating it. We're causing it. We're eating it. We're feeding it to our children. So, and we're sowing the seeds, essentially, in our behavior of the enslavement of other living beings. And so we're going to find that we ourselves get enslaved as human beings. We're, and, and I think that's another thing that we see happening is that as we turn these animals into livestock, that we're sowing the seeds for ourselves to be turned into livestock. And I think it's pretty obvious that there are uh, very wealthy, powerful forces that view us as, you know, the masses of humanity merely as livestock to be exploited, force medicated, uh, tracked, uh, and culled very often. And, and I think that's what we do to cows. We do that all the time to cows and pigs and chickens. We do all these things. And, and we try to actually, uh, we have scientists working to dumb them down, try to make cows and pigs and chickens who are less uh, sensitive, who are less intelligent, because that, then they're easier to control. They won't be so frustrated by being stuck in a cage all day. So that's quite a, a you know an area of research. And for me, and my PhD is in education, and the research I've done in education really is that our educational system is set up more or less to do the same thing to get us to reduce our capacities, to reduce our critical thinking abilities and our intuition and our empathy and to increase our willingness to obey authorities and to shut down our ability to make connections, to really connect the dots of what's going on. And I think that, uh, veganism really is a call to practice cultivating empathy and intelligence in the sense of making the connections about what we're actually doing. Because when we enslave animals, we're definitely enslaving, uh, on the path of enslaving uh, human beings. And I would say that it's only human beings who are well on their way to being enslaved who would ever enslave animals, who would ever tolerate living in a society where every day millions of animals are just sold by the pound like sacks of cement you know, in the most hideous condition as slaves. I mean, we are well on our way to being enslaved if we allow that to happen. So it's very important, I think, that we uh, stop this behavior and create freedom for animals so we can have freedom for ourselves. Yeah, your book, The World Peace Diet, was revelatory to me because even after I went vegan, I still thought about animal suffering as a bit of a fluff issue. And reading your book really helped me see that no, it's at the core of, of human suffering, of exploitation in general, and that the roots of it are, are the same roots of all other evil in the world. It really, it really helped me see the issue in a much broader, um, deeper sense. Um, so I'd love to hear more about your dissertation, The Role of Intuition in Education. Um, what is intuition and what is its role in learning and in living? 
Yeah, I, I got so interested uh, through my quite a few years of uh, living in meditation centers that uh, we have as human beings this capacity to connect with an internal guidance system that's not conditioned by society or by our own past uh, or even by logic and rationality that we we can actually we don't need to have a, a logical reason to do something <laughs> we can just feel a calling and and uh, and follow that and I realized that a lot I think as a musician you know I play the piano and I I just practiced and I played and I was uh, a church organist in high school and and I would just play to other people's music but then as part of this thing when I was in college of reading Thoreau and Emerson and Walt Whitman and started practicing yoga and Zen meditation I started sitting at the piano and just not thinking and not reading other I didn't want to play other people's music anymore I, I was this rebellious kind of thing came into my being and I I started to just at night just without thinking let music come through melodies and chord patterns and rhythms and it was to me it was so beautiful the things that started coming it was like somebody was playing through me it felt like it wanted to come through and so I started getting really interested in this phenomenon of creativity and intuition and uh, where where does, does something new come from where does wisdom come from where does uh, where do creative ideas come from? I think there's a whole realm of consciousness that's beyond this. And so when I started meditating and quieting my mind, I began to realize that there's a whole history and tradition uh, all over the world of people who have understood this. And that was uh, what I was very interested in. So I got a master's degree at San Francisco State University in Zen arts. Uh, so I really went deep into the Japanese tea ceremony and the no theater and haiku poetry and um, Zen uh, arts of various kinds, shiatsu and archery and, you know, the Zen spirit, uh, landscape painting, all these different um, flower arranging, there's so many different things. And all of these Zen arts uh, really have to do with cultivating your intuition, connecting with nature and, and seeing somehow looking into the concrete and seeing the infinite in the concrete, you know, looking mm -hmm. into a flower and somehow seeing the entire universe in that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's sort of the complete opposite of the materialistic sort of scientific worldview that sort of strips away the spirit and only sees the thing. This is to see the spirit in, in manifest uh, nature. So after getting my master's degree and, and living in these monasteries and meditating thousands of hours and all these things, I decided to, um, I wanted to get a PhD and teach college. And so when I was at Berkeley uh, studying education, the philosophy of education, my passion really was intuition. And I uh, thought that I could never do a dissertation on intuition. Uh, I, I was going to do an interdisciplinary dissert, uh, PhD which would have been a bureaucratic thrill ordeal. Mm. And then this, there was, but my advisor who was an old fellow, he was getting ready to retire. And he said, intuition, that has, that's a very, that has a strong uh, foundation in the West. You can, you can look at the pre-Socratics, you can look at Plato, you can look at Bergson, you can look at a lot. And then of course I, I had already done a huge amount of research from uh, 
in the Buddhist tradition and other Eastern traditions and then shamanic traditions. So anyway, he said, you can do it. Go ahead. So I did. <laughs> and I just dove into this, this uh, it's, it was called the role of intuition in education, basically educating intuition in adults. And the dissertation was actually nominated as the best dissertation at Berkeley that year. I think it was 1980. Wow. And uh, it was, um, it was kind of, it was somewhat of a, um, of a scandal, I think that it, that it was it was nominated. I think because I, I heard later from one of the deans that he was shocked that such that my dissertation would be nominated as one of the best <laughs> on intuition. You know, such a did that so make I, you feel good that you shocked the dean? It did. Yeah, it did. You know, because what I realized, and I realize it now even more, like with the with the COVID pandemic and just in general, that there's this there's this whole thing. Like the farther you go in education. In many ways, the more you you enter into deeper chambers of a gigantic prison, and you get more and more imprisoned, you get more mm -hmm. benefits. Right? It's like mm -hmm. you know, you get a seal of approval, and you can make money, uh, you know, on the system because you've gone through all this training. But I could, you know, I felt that when I was getting my PhD at Berkeley, that I was could be very easily damaged, very badly, if I was willing to uh, acquiesce. To, to look at the world the way they wanted me to look at the world, in a sense. Mm. I feel like I was very fortunate that I had already gone through a lot of training in meditation um, so that I could maintain my independence in the face of, uh, of, of, a, of a tremendous pressure not to do that. You know, There's tremendous pressure, both direct and indirect, to become like them if you want to get their seal of approval. Because you have to pass all these tests and have the dissertation approved and 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 the, and, the, and defend your dissertation in the committee and it's all it's all ritualized in a way that makes the the candidate feel like they're nothing and mm -hmm. and they, and the faculty has all the power and you better just please them you know and so i can see why now when governmental agencies and and academic institutions lie and create all kinds of false narratives that the academics for the most part don't question it they they go along because you're trained to just go along and and be part of this very elite club and if you go along you'll get your rewards you get a lot of money and a lot mm. of status a lot of prestige don't question it and uh, so i was um i was very much against that the whole way and i was somehow able to uh, i think i was somewhat fortunate i just there was a few people there at Berkeley, who were who were getting close to retirement, who were more, um, more open. They weren't they weren't just trying to hold the hard line. You have mm. to, be, you know, it was before computers, which I think helped. You know, it was mm. it was it was a little more. Everything was more analog, not so digital <laughs> back then. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, so I was able to do that, and and it was really ended up being a very interesting, very very positive experience, all in all. And uh, the, the underlying idea in the dissertation really is that education um, destroys, in many ways, it's designed to, to destroy our intuition. It's designed to, to really attack and reduce our intuitive powers as human beings mm -hmm. by focusing on having us um, obey authorities and so forth. But then uh, most of what I wrote about was, was the, um, the fact that we as human beings can cultivate practices that develop our intuition, meditative practices, training our, our attention, so that instead of having, a, most people have a attention that is not trained in any way, it, it just jumps around, it goes 
all over the place. You know, we, we're just, our mind is not uh, trained. It's, it's kind of like the, the metaphor I have is of a, a beautiful piano. We get this beautiful piano, like a beautiful Steinway grand piano. That's our mind, you know, and we have this beautiful instrument, but our parents, our educational system, everything, none of it teaches us how to properly really play this piano. It teaches us in many ways to just spill Coca-Cola into the action and bang on the keys. And we, we're not really taught how to uh, be the observer of our thoughts and our feelings, how to cultivate loving kindness and compassion for others, how to watch the states of mind as they change, how to develop a real um, healthy relationship with our mind. And so for most people, whether they're very academically trained or not, the mind is more or less an enemy in many ways. Our mind pulls us into addictions, pulls us into doing things that hurt us and hurt other people around us. Uh, our emotions run us around, pull us everywhere. And vegans are no different. Vegans basically, for the most part, haven't done much meditation and uh, training of their mind or taming their mind in a sense. So. Uh, we're, for the most part, we're suffering the same thing. So I did a lot of work, uh, in, not only in research, but then a lot of just working with my mind and sitting in, in silence and watching my mind and getting to know my, the, how my attention works and how, the, how it's connected to the breathing and how it's just connect, how the mind and body work together. You know, all these things that you can't really learn it unless you do it. And I, I so I, I kind of was able to bring that to my dissertation and the, and, uh, and also there's a lot of wonderful um, material in both in the Eastern and Western traditions that support the idea that as we develop uh, a relationship with our mind and train our mind, that we uh, develop capacities to know at a deeper level. I mean, we can actually understand things at a deeper level beyond just the, the rational level. And the thing is, it's, it's kind of like, like a, a good metaphor would be like if, if someone is trained as a biologist, they can look at a slide in a microscope and they can see things. If I was untrained and I looked at that same slide, it would just be a bunch of squiggles and I wouldn't know what the heck it was. Mm -hmm. But with a training, you really can see, you can get a lot of insight. Well, it's the same thing with meditation. Like the average person, when they sit down, they look into their mind. It's just a bunch of squiggles and you know, their mind is running around going here going there but with training we can do we can look into our mind and we can go much deeper and we can discover insights and truths that are abiding like jewels in our consciousness that can liberate us uh, and help us understand how to heal our body how to how to create music and art and, and, and come up with ideas that can be very helpful and liberating for ourselves and for our society so um, to me, that's something that is pretty much unexplored territory in our society. And I wanted to create a dissertation that would kind of lay the groundwork for people to honor that in the educational system, mm -hmm. that we would actually say there's a place in education for, for educating intuition to cultivate that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And it's, so how do how do we cultivate that intuition? Is meditation the key to staying in touch with that genuine intuition? It's one of the keys. Yeah, meditation is one of the keys. I think it's very helpful because that's how we really get to know our mind. And that's how, uh, with time, we develop the ability to distinguish between thoughts that are just the cultural program in my mind or, or my own history, you know, those thoughts from genuine uh, insights that are coming 
uh, from the deeper part of our consciousness, from our true nature. Uh, I think it's hard to avoid a med actual, the actual in-the-trenches work of meditation uh, where we're watching our mind and bringing it back to the present moment. Because our mind's always running off left and right, past and future, to keep it right here present and just aware. Uh, but there's other things. I think working with dreams is another key. Mm. When we work with dreams, we begin to connect with other currents in our mind. Uh, working with uh, creating a positive internal environment. A lot of people, we never do that uh, consciously. So I think it's good to take have a practice of gratitude and a practice of like a gratitude journal maybe or, or just to really create a, a positive internal environment because we're all bombarded with so much negativity that our intuition is kind of buried in negativity and fear from our society. That's, that's the tactic really to keep people uh, enslaved and out of touch with their intuition. Uh, so that so those are three things that are important. Also connecting with nature, just getting into nature uh, will help us connect with our intuition. Going on a retreat, going into the wilderness, being alone in the wilderness or camping, or even just taking walks in nature, uh, very much can help connect us with our intuition. Creativity also, just having a creative uh, practice. People who are artists, musicians, dancers, drummer, you know, anything, writers, poetry, all these things, when we start being creative, we start connecting with our intuition. They're, they're very much connected. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, veganism. I think when we start to really look deeply into our relationship with animals, we begin to make connections. And, and really, intuition is about making connections. So when we start to act with more compassion in the world, then we start to find our intuition getting stronger naturally. It doesn't mean it will, but it can get stronger. I think we still should do other, these other practices, meditation, affirmations, working with dreams, connecting with nature, connecting with creativity, living a kind, compassionate life, uh, taking risks and trying new things is another thing, you know, getting out of the ruts that we're usually in. Uh, that can help connect us with our uh, intuition. Really, you know, Cultivating positive relationships is important. A lot of people, when we get into negative relationships that are based on, uh, you know, domination or fear, or uh, that are um, just there's a lot of people that that uh, are codependent in some way and, and living through each other in ways uh, that can kind of harm our intuition also. So all these things they all go together, and I think meditation really helps. Uh, Get, you know, not being addicted to any substances really helps a lot. I mean, that's one of the things I think that a lot of people have problems. They're drinking alcohol, they're smoking, or they're uh, doing drugs of some kind, or they're addicted to f uh, foods that are not, you know, have a lot of sugar, or, or just addictive behaviors in general keep us out of touch with ourselves. And there's lots of different addictive behaviors of various kinds, but to try to really wean ourselves from that kind of stuff television watching. I haven't watched TV in like 50 years. Madeline too. We're, we're you know, uh, just I think um, whole organic plant-based foods, I think is really important. Also, um, making sure we're not drinking water that has fluoride. That's another whole thing. You know, we're being bombarded with uh, chemicals and some of them like flora, fluoride in water. And it's also in a lot of um, herbicide and pesticide residues. Uh, it really attacks our pineal gland. It kind of calcifies the pineal gland, which is in our center of our brain. And that's a very important uh, part of our 
of our being, our brain, but also it's, a, it's kind of like a gateway between uh, our conscious mind and our deeper intuitive mind. And it really it makes that, it severs that connection. So I think uh, mm -hmm. purifying ourselves, like fasting, you know, fasting is a great way to uh, purify the, not only the body, but also the mind. And a lot of people have found uh, great intuitive breakthroughs through fasting. You know, water fasting or even juice fasting can be really good. Uh, we, we sort of break the habit of eating all the time and just not eat for three or four days and, and or five days. You know, try that. I mean, that can be a, a powerful tool to connect with intuition also. And we can all do intermittent fasting on a daily basis, which is just having a, a nice chunk of time. Like we have about, I think it's about 14 hours. We have the last meal at six and we don't eat again until... 10 or 11 in the morning. So we have a nice long time where the body's not processing food. And it's, it's a good time to digest not only the food that gets digested, but we can uh, contemplate and go deeper. So you can extend the time between meals also. I think all these things can help. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes I feel like my intuition leads me astray. So how can I be clear whether what seems to be my intuition is genuine intuition or something else like wishful thinking or delusion? I think the main thing is we learn from uh, seeing the results of our actions. You know, it's kind of like you just learn by like, oh, it just seemed like the perfect night. Everything said yes. Everything said yes. So I said yes. And then I went, the next morning I went, oh, no, I didn't believe I did that. You know? Right, right. <laughs> so you, kind of, you kind of learn by the uh, results. And then, and then it's like my old Zen teacher said, you know, it's like you hit the pothole once and then it comes up again. You think, I'm going to go around it this time. <laughs> you know? so, so we do, you know, the, a human incarnation is, is like submerging consciousness into a very heavy vibratory realm. And so... Uh, we we get hit by things pretty hard, and so we 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 can easily get led astray, like you're saying. We think we're getting good guidance, and then we see that, gosh, you know, that didn't really work out the way I w thought it was going to. And sometimes, you know, the, the interesting thing is that sometimes you have to see the the movie at a, at a, a bigger and bigger level because what seems to be good is actually not so good, and what seems to be not so good is actually good. <laughs> so sometimes. I, we think, well, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. But then if you wait a few more years and get a more perspective, then you see, well, but that actually led to this, which is actually really good, you know. So it's, it's, um, it's really, I think, learning by experience is really important. You know, getting in touch with the feeling and what, what the intuition is that didn't, didn't seem right. And then when it is, you know, there's a, there's a different quality to it. And I think uh, it's getting sensitive. It's really resensitizing ourselves to the energy of the subtle feelings that are in us, which we've all learned to block. Because all of us as little kids, when we're born here, we get banged around, we get assaulted, we get blamed and shamed and criticized. We're forced to compete in a very kind of heartless uh, academic system and then economic system. And so we just learn to put on a lot of armor. We learn to protect ourselves and put on armor and we lose touch with these sensitive, very sensitive, fine feelings. And so the good thing is when we get older, we can begin to take the armor off and we can begin to feel again the sensitive feelings. We can begin to emo you know, feel our emotions again. We can cry again. You know, we, can, we can have compassion for the little wounded little child that's inside of us. 
and and let you know let go of some of those wounds but it takes work you know i think it really takes time and work to do all that stuff and when we go through that then the armor comes off more and then we're more sensitive we're more actually sensitive to the uh until then it's kind of difficult actually yeah it's so interesting to hear you describe it in those terms because my whole childhood i was told that my problem was that i was too sensitive so the notion of intentionally right. cultivating more sensitivity was, is, you know, it's just the polar opposite of kind of how I was steered as a kid. Um, I remember the first time as an adult, I heard the word sensitive used in a positive light. My jaw dropped <laughs> because my whole, my whole childhood, I had been led to believe, you know, that was my fatal flaw. You know, the reason I was wow. never gonna, never gonna make it in the world was right. I was too sensitive. Um, right, so, right. so how do we balance that? You know, how do we counter, you know, that, that the difficulty of being sensitive in a world that does bang us around, you know, with the rewards of sensitivity? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's really um, why meditation is so important because if we, as long as we're attached or identified with this body, this me, this, this conglomeration of the body with its attendant consciousness, the, the perceptions and the feelings and the memories and the identity that I have, like we, we really think that that's what we are. That's all we are. That's what we are. We were born and this is me. I'm my name, my form my history, all my awards, all my wounds, all my diseases, all my skills and abilities, all my accomplishments, all the people that hate me and the people that love me, you know, all this whole, that whole conglomeration that sort of is us. And then we, we bring that with us to everything we're doing. And so we identify with it. And I think that's the thing. We, we really identify with that instead of seeing that, that we are far greater than that. We're, we are what actually makes that that little appearance possible and um for me it, that it, it, that's just a concept until through meditation the mind gets quiet enough and there can just be this intuitive knowing that the source of what i am is the same as the source that goes through everything and it's not separate from everything anything everything and there's this feeling of just this, the self falling away, but there's still awareness. And, and so that's, um, that's called in some, in some spiritual traditions, that's called a type of liberation. You're like, we're liberated from this identification with being a fundamentally separate self. It's, it's, it, it's, it takes a lot of uh, effort though. I mean, to, we, we have to be able to really let go of identifying with, with all these different things because when, then when someone attacks me, say, you know, and if I'm, uh, or I get harmed by something that happens, there's a realization that what I am is not just this thing that can be attacked. I am far greater than that. It's, it's like the ocean. Uh, like, I, like, I think I'm this little wave, you know, separate from the ocean. And what's going to happen when the, when, the, when the wave ends, that's the end of my life. And then I realized that wave is actually what I really am is the whole ocean, you know, and it's not. I'm not just this little wave. That's kind of a metaphor, but uh, the ocean is not that concerned about the wave coming and going. It, it maybe loves that little wave, but it knows that it's far greater than just that wave. And when we have that awareness, then 
no one can harm us, really. I mean, nothing, nothing can harm us, actually. I think that's really the, the deeper understanding. What gets harmed is, t- is in time, but what we are is eternal, or, or it not, it, it's not, we're not finite in the same way. We're consciousness, we're not a thing. And what animal agriculture is, more than anything, it's materialism. I mean, we, we've been basically uh, steeping and brewing in 10,000 years marinating in 10,000 years of materialism because once we started to own animals as property and we just reduced them to objects we buy and sell by the pound and so for 10,000 years our civilization has become the most materialistic in the history of the world so most of us have this underlying assumption that we're just this body this is what was being reinforced all the time that's the great wound and it makes us sensitive in a in a kind of um, not healthy way like we're we're afraid we can get hurt and we're you know and we and we react and we're and we're um, you know sensitive in that way that we 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 that I, I let other people control my emotions you know like mm. they, they criticize me and then I'm miserable and they say something nice and then I'm happy you know it's like then we're we're a slave you know we're just whatever mm. other people do they can totally control us so what I'm talking about is a sensitivity where we're sensitive to the being that we are which is infinite eternal consciousness actually that makes this possible and we're and we're connected to that we're i mean we, we realize that that's what our true nature is and then the outer things that nothing can harm us the outer things that seem to have so much power over us suddenly shrink <laughs> they shrink in their in their uh impact because we realize that when someone else does something that makes maybe as a criticism or shaming or blaming or whatever it is they're, wound, they're wounded. I mean, people are wounded and they do all kinds of things and we can have compassion for them. It's, they can't ever harm what we are. Uh, it's a practice that, and an awareness that can come through the, through the practice, I think, of meditation and just of daily living, of going through what we, the, you know, what we all go through in daily life and studying scriptures. I think studying sacred texts really helps. Like there's that story uh, from the Taoist tradition of the empty boat where there's this guy who's out on a, on, a, on a lake and he's in a boat and it's just a beautiful day and he's so happy. And so he decides to just lie on his back and look up at the sky and the clouds. So he's doing that. And after a while, all of a sudden, wham, something slams into his boat. Uh, another boat slams into his boat and it just knocks him, you know, like, and he's and instantly he's angry. He's like, who could be so stupid or who could be so uh, vicious as to come and just run right into me. And so he gets up and he's ready to f- fight or you know, whatever, who, who this person is. And it's an empty boat. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a boat that was just, just blown by the wind and it ran into him. And so he bursts into laughter. You know, he just laughs and he thinks, silly me. You know, I thought, there was somebody in there trying to harm me. And that's the whole point. It's like, it's always an empty boat. It's always someone who's, who is driven by the winds of their own conditioning and they say something and we can go, oh, what do you said? It's an empty boat. It just banged into us. It's nothing personal. There's nothing personal ever. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not that way. And uh, once we begin to see that, then we have a foundation for equanimity. And we can, instead of reacting, we can be proactive and we can just do the best we can to shine the light of kindness and love to everyone, no matter what they do. And the more we get attacked, more we send love. And that's really the practice. Mm. I love that story. That's very helpful. Um, So tell me about when you became a Zen monk, what prompted you to take that route? 
Well, I had always wanted that. I mean, I, from, from the time I, my brother and I left home, I had this feeling of, of just devoting myself completely to meditation. And it was irritating to have to make money and get a job and make a resume and go here and there. And I avoided that quite a bit, but I still had to do it somewhat here and there. I, mean, I did all kinds of things. I, I, I lived without money a lot. Uh, I remember going to a bookstore. I wanted a book and I didn't have any money, you know, but I, <laughs> I, I painted their bathroom and they gave me a book, you know, <laughs> you know just, you know, trading and things. And, and then uh, I remember living in a, at a Tibetan Buddhist center and we were very, very avid meditators in San Francisco. And I did long retreats in, uh, up in Oregon in the wilderness by myself and, 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 uh, and thought, I, you know, I'm ready now to just, to just, uh, give myself completely to being a monk. And then, um, and then, the, then the opportunity came up where, uh, through this, I was living in a, a, a um, Korean Zen Buddhist uh, center and the, uh, a Korean um, Zen master from, came over to San Francisco, it was actually Oakland, and said that he could arrange it, that I could go over and shave my head and become a monk over there at a, a temple called Songwangsa. And so I did. I went over, I, I shaved my head I, and was living there. And I loved it, actually. I, I really um, thought it was fantastic. But with time, I felt that it was not the best thing for me. I felt like I had a lot of other things I wanted to do, actually. And so it was kind of like this idea of just getting paid to meditate. You don't have to do anything because in a way you're taken care of. I mean, there was, the food is there. And you're meditating, and, and, and there's a whole community of people in South Korea who, the Buddhist community, who value people who do that, you know. And, and I mean, I would come into a room and people would prostrate at my feet just because I was a monk, you know. It was, it was kind of ridiculous, but that's, that's just not really ridiculous. But I mean, it was, it was just this, that was their, 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 you know, respect for people who devote themselves completely to, a, to, to enlightenment. Um, so anyway, but I felt, you know, this draw, calling to come back and it was a, it was a difficult decision, but I decided to eventually. Yeah. So how long were you at that monastery in Korea? It was about a half a year and, um, I was, but I was in, in Zen in meditation centers in general for probably eight or nine years. Wow. And, uh, I felt eventually that's when I came back and got my PhD at Berkeley and then, uh, taught college for about four or five years and then I went over I was I was going to to uh, Europe and to Russia actually when uh, Russia was the evil empire in the early 90s and I was doing concerts over there citizen diplomacy and that's when I met Madeline in Switzerland and then eventually she came over and uh, we eventually got married and we're we've been now married for 30 years it's amazing how <laughs> time goes wow. by wow and, uh, and really you know promoting the not only the music uh, as a as a path for for healing, but also the, the vegan message. Mm. And was Madeline, Madeline a vegan when you, when you met Basically, her? yes. Yeah, yeah. She was a long time. We, we actually both became vegetarians the same month and year back in 1975. She gave huh. up meat too. And, uh, and she was also very, very committed to organic uh, and nothing that, that harms ecosystems and so forth. And she had studied with some of the premier people. In fact, she had been the personal um, uh, attendant and uh, helper to Alfred Fogel, who was a very famous uh, naturopathic doctor in Switzerland, 
who has a whole line of, they sell it all over the world, in the United States too. Uh, what's this thing called? The, the, yeah, Bioforce, that company Bioforce. You can find his products. But anyway, so she was heavily um, trained in not only in Waldorf um, in, in, in anthroposophy and Steiner, but also in uh, organic gardening and, and all that and vegan living. So um, yeah, so it was, it was really like we never met. We just met because I played the piano at an art gallery opening and, and she uh, liked the music. So <laughs> <laughs> She was a groupie? Well, kind of, I guess. I mean, I left right away. <laughs> But um, but she uh, started buying, uh, sending money to me to buy uh, cassettes back in the day of cassettes to sell in, in in bookstores and music stores around Switzerland. And then I needed an artist for my first CD, and she said I can be your artist for this. So she came over to do art, and so we thought we would just create a CD together. Like she'd do the art, I'd do the music, and uh, but then we got married. We fell in love and got married. So wow. uh, it was a you know, really great. Uh, it was one of those things that you know, couldn't plan it. I was just in one little town in the entire country of Switzerland, and that's happened to be where she was. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So in a world where being divorced is the rule rather than the exception, um, what suggestions do you have for keeping a marriage fulfilling and long-lasting? I, well, I think there's a few things that are really important. I mean, the most important thing probably is you have similar values. Uh, and similar um, goals, like have a, have a, I mean, having a mission together, I think is really great. Like we both have the same basic mission uh, in our life and it, and it has two levels. The one level is just waking up, you know, like spiritual effort, you know, meditating and, and awakening out of the delusion of separateness. And so Madeline is very committed to that. And also, and, and I, I, that was always the most important thing to me too. But then we also have this mission together of liberating animals. And she's totally on board with that and very, um, you know, committed, just as committed as I am, you know, so there's no, it's like, there's no difference. I mean, she's totally into, I mean, I'm the one who writes books and gives talks and everything, but she, she's totally agrees. And, and so there's not this feeling of, well, that's his trip and that's her trip and she likes to do that i like to do this i mean she has certain things she likes to do that i don't do like she does a lot of knitting and a lot of uh, uh, things with crafts she's really into crafts and i'm more into um, making things that are you know more heavy like sort of carpentry and things like that uh, but we both love gardening and we have a lot of similar interests so i say that the things that that really help are having a mission together uh, having uh, values that are similar, and then uh, food, I think, is really important. <laughs> having, having, you know, basically being on the same page about food, and um, and then the other thing, I guess, that's uh, I would say uh, important is uh, really taking time to feed the relationship. You know, taking time to actually. Uh, get to know each other and, and spend time to, together every day doing something. You know, there's two kinds of intimacy. There's the intimacy where it's sort of shoulder to shoulder intimacy where you're working together on a project, uh, you know, like making a garden together and working together. But there's also the face to face intimacy where you just take time. Like, so every morning, you know, we really do that. We really connect. How was your night and talk to each other and share. And we do that in the morning. We do that in the evening. We very often do that in the middle of the day, you know, just to kind of check in and, and 
spend time connecting with each other. And then the other thing I, I, is um, just really keeping the communication positive. I think that's very important. Uh, and I, and I, um, uh, I, I remember reading a study where they, they, they looked at the, well, at the um, relationships between people who divorced, people who probably got, would get divorced, and people who like, never did, like really stayed together. And what they found was that uh, when people uh, had uh, interactions that were positive half of the time, in other words, a positive interaction is saying, gosh, you look great, or thanks for that. A negative interaction would be sort of a, a subtle criticism of some kind, saying, well, you could have done that a little better, or I, I, I kind of wish you would do this. So they found that when positive and negative uh, were equal, then 100% of the time it ended in divorce. So like that does not, like 50-50 is not good enough. You can, if you say something that's not very supportive, and then you say something that's supportive, that's not going to cut it. <laughs> they found that it, when it was like 75% positive and 25% negative, that was pretty good, but there were still quite a few divorces. It was really only when it was 90, at least 90% po positive and 10% negative that people really stayed together. And I, I love that because what I found is that that's something you can really do. You know, it doesn't cost anything to just be loving, to say loving things, say, gosh, you look great. And thanks for that. And appreciate this. And, you know, just, just kind of put out positive, loving um, words and gestures to people uh, because we're all suffering. We're all under kind of stress and feel like, feeling judged and blamed because we, we were usually as kids. So just the more we can shed kind, loving thoughts, especially in our close relationships, uh, the more it just creates a foundation of harmony and respect and appreciation. And it really builds. It just creates a, a very positive uh, kind of a thing. And it's important to do it not, not just uh, sort of as a, in a, as a formula, but to have a feeling. But I found the feeling grows, you know, when, when we do it. So uh, I think communication, I remember I studied rebirth, rebirthing breathing, which is this intense breathing. Uh, and you can do it, uh, you know, you do it usually in a dyad. But the people that wrote that book, um, his name was Jim Leonard. He, he had a great saying. He said, uh, communication will not solve 100% of your relationship problems, but it will definitely solve 99.9% .9 of them. <laughs> you know, so I think he's really right. I mean, communication is so important. And to keep our communications clear and positive uh, and honest, you know, I mean, there's a, it's a little bit of a dance to do the honest thing, but to, uh, but to really stay positive and supportive with the people that we're with. And the other thing, of course, is that we become like the people we hang out with. So it's very important to, to be discriminating in, in who we want to really have as close friends and partners uh, because that's, that's a critical thing. And mm. we have to use our intuition <laughs> in, right, our, right. in those situations. Yeah. Right. That's, that's great. Um, great input. I've, I heard, remember hearing that too about the positive communications needing to outweigh the negative by the the statistic yeah. I heard was it needed to be you know at least a ratio of five to one positive to negative and right. uh, that really stayed with me um so I won't keep you for too much longer I feel like we barely scratched the surface so I have a, a million more things I could ask about but I will um 
narrow it down to just a few more things. Um, tell us how you came to write the world's peace diet. You know, that, that was really, uh, something I did not want to do. I, initially I felt a calling in a certain direction, but I remember it was mainly, I think, because I had a feeling that I saw something that I thought other people must see because it was, it was so obvious to me. You know, there was like this basic thing was there's three main reasons why people stop eating animal food and try to help liberate animals. One is it's better for your health. One is it's better for the environment. And the third was it's better for the animals. You know, it's like <laughs> these are the big three and everybody kind of revolves around that. And after doing a lot of meditation and a lot of research and so forth, I thought that that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are important, but there's so much more to it. There's this whole historical and anthropological and cultural dimension and the spiritual dimensions and the economic and political dimensions. And I, I felt that if people really understood what animal agriculture actually does to us, to the inner landscape of our consciousness, what it does to our society, what it does to relationships between men and women, it's way bigger than that, than what people realized. And I thought, and I remember saying to Madeline, you know, there's so much more to this than what people realize. Uh, there's a much bigger picture. I can't wait to read the book. Someone's going to write about it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> and I just thought someone would. And, and a few years went by and I, and I did more research and, and talked to Madeline some more. And, and then at one point she said, I think if you want to read that book, you might have to write it yourself. <laughs> and then I, I started to think, you know, she's probably right. I think maybe I am uniquely, uh, for some reason, chosen to write this book because I had done so much research. Like my PhD at Berkeley was so wide ranging. I took courses in public health, hmm. education, social psychology, anthropology, and you know, master's degree and all my other things. I, I just was really wide my interests were so wide and, and then I did so much you know, the music and the meditation and all that. So anyway, so I, I started writing the World Peace Diet and, and I submitted a proposal to Lantern Books and they basically said, if you write this book, we will publish it. Mm. So then I, I spent five years just doing the writing and the research and it came out and it really did take off. I have to say more than I thought. It became a number one Amazon bestseller worldwide in 2010. And uh, it's been translated now into I think 18 languages every single one uh, by volunteers. So we've been invited all over the world uh, to speak in, all over Asia, especially Asia, China, hmm. uh, and uh, Taiwan, and Korea, and Vietnam, and South, all over Southeast Asia, Indonesia, as well as Africa, all over Europe. I mean, it's been pretty much every European language. And uh, Central, uh, I mean, South America, and um, Australia, New Zealand, India. So it's uh, really become a movement in the sense that it's there's another level of veganism that's talked about in the World Peace Diet. I refer to it as deep veganism. It's basically taking veganism to a deeper level, because I think if we fail to do that, we're not going to get very far. You know, we're going to just be trying to change other people, trying to get them to to go vegan like we are, and we don't really have the deeper spiritual or cultural understanding of what's at stake and what this is all about. And we end up just fighting with other people, fighting with each other. And, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that um, so many people have read the World Peace Diet. We do it, uh, training programs and things. And I'm thinking that, uh, you know, as, as people do the inner work and, and understand what veganism really is at a deeper level, how liberating animals and liberating ourselves really go hand in hand, 
that we do have the possibility to liberate our society. And I think we're living in unusually challenging times where there are very, very powerful forces that have been uh, evolving and, in a sense, consolidating power for centuries. Mm. Uh, and I think right now, through the medical tyranny and some of the other um, economic and political kinds of uh, tyranny that we see uh, emerging around the world, even within the United States also, that it's essential that we liberate animals because if we fail to liberate them, uh, we're not going to be able to liberate ourselves. The, the old I used to teach college courses in comparative religion, and the world religions all agree that whatever you sow, so shall you reap. You know, that's the underlying idea. It's also the golden rule. Don't right. do to others what you wouldn't want to have done to yourself. And animals are definitely sentient as we are. They're very sentient. They have interests that are as important to them as ours are to us. So uh, this is our big test, and we mm. are really called, I think, to understand this at a deep level and then do like what you're doing, you know, basically to help share these ideas with other people in a way that they can understand them. So I really appreciate what you're doing, Chrissy. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Well, as, as I think you know, your book, The World Peace Diet, was a life changer for me because um, a few points to make about that book for listeners who may not be familiar with it. Um, number one, one of the points you make, which I think is really well taken, is that we can't bring that herding mentality to carrying the, the vegan message. You know, we can't try to herd and manipulate other humans into going vegan because that would be counter to the whole liberation premise of veganism. Um, so I think that's something that really stayed with me. And in, in the world's peace diet, you know that just about everyone claims to be in favor of world peace, and yet we've got this food system that's premised on violence. So that's just a basic reality that most people walk around not acknowledging right. and, you know, intentionally or, or unintentionally just oblivious to. But what I love about the world peace diet is that you even go a level deeper and you also point out that systems as extensive and far reaching as our violent food system don't just pop up randomly out of nowhere. They require certain mindsets and attitudes to foster them and sustain them. Um, so can you talk about some of those human assumptions and attitudes that gave rise to this violent food system? Well, yeah, that's the thing, you know, that's, that's really the, the heart of the whole thing is it requires a certain mentality in order to routinely and relentlessly kill millions of animals every day and also to eat them. And uh, it, you know, I go into the history of this very briefly. It looks like it goes back about 10,000 years to what is today Iraq. And while sheep were the first beings that instead of just being hunted, they started to be owned as property. And while goats, cows, and so forth, and that led to maybe five or six major changes. Number one was animals were just reduced to being either property or pests that might interfere with our property gradually. And then the arising of a wealthy elite class that owned most of the uh, property animals and the animals themselves becoming wealth, really the foundation for wealth. Uh, the old Latin word capita uh, means head, so we have the sort of proto-capitalist society where a wealthy elite controls and owns 
the wealth uh, and, and the means of producing wealth, which was livestock. You could, you had livestock, but they needed land, they needed water, you could breed them. And you, with that power base, uh, you could go then get more uh, capital. And that was the arising, as I said earlier, of war. The oldest word for war was gavia, meaning the desire for more cows. That led to slavery. Uh, led to the domination of women because women, the, the, the sacred feminine dimension really began to be seen merely as a breeder to give, to give more livestock, to give more sons, you know, that kind of a thing. So the enslavement uh, or at least the, uh, the domination of women uh, followed uh, right along with that. And then, of course, boys having to lose uh, touch with their natural uh, tenderness and sensitivity in order to be hard and tough and disconnected. Uh, from uh, from nature and from animals and capable of violence. And so you have the arising in the Eastern Mediterranean region of a very violent, warlike, patriarchal society. Uh, and that spread to the Northern Mediterranean. And we see that, we see that in the ancient Greek and Roman and into the, into the Central Asia and then to Europe. And then from there coming out, you know, throughout the world really in the colonial period, and it's spread, you know, and it's still spreading now. We're, we're born into that same culture. That's the thing to understand. And that culture has a religion and a science and a political economic system, educational systems. All these institutions are basically uh, manufactured by and reflect the underlying uh, template, which is herding animals. It's, it's dom the domination of the weak by the strong and seeing animals in nature as something to be uh, dominated and exploited and the feminine something to be dominated and exploited. And so the inner landscape of our consciousness being just being born into that is wounded. We're, we learn to disconnect from nature and animals. We learn to disconnect from the sacred feminine. We learn to disconnect from our capacity really to make connections, which is intelligence. That's a whole other uh, discussion, but uh, we learn to, um, to live in a society that's based on privilege and elitism because that's the subtext of every meal. And so the whole thing, every single problem that we're having, we're inflicting on animals, we are basically creating through animal agriculture and through teaching children to eat the flesh and secretions of horribly abused animals, not to care about those animals, not to really care about what the consequences of their actions are and that the strong dominate and exploit the weak and those who are inherently uh, superior, it's fine for them to dominate those who are inherently inferior and the superior get to decide who's inferior, you know, all of this stuff. And so we try you know, like so valiantly to create peace, to create justice, to create sustainability, to create harmony, all these you know, laudable goals. And yet our food system, which is our most intimate connection with nature and with our society is completely contrary to that. So the entire thrust of our, our society and the, and the physical vehicle that we're using uh, is completely against that. So we don't make progress. We really, in fact, I would say we've made some progress, but we also seem in many ways to be going backwards. You know, we have the, a greater gap between the rich and the poor than ever in the history of the world. And, and so, so I think, uh, the technology that we've developed and science is a definite manifestation of animal agriculture uh, is, is creating a system of surveillance and domination of the weak by the strong, just like uh, animal agriculture. So it's a mirror really of what we're doing. The outer world is a mirror of the inner world and we have to understand that. So 
if we want to transform our society, the most important thing is to transform our inner world, to stop seeing animals as mere objects, give them what we would like to have, which is sovereignty, give them their sovereignty, let them live like they're designed to for millions of years, and they did before we interfered with them, let them live their lives. And when we move to a way of eating um, that's plant-based, we can f free up literally hundreds of millions of acres of land. Three quarters of the, all the land we're using now for agriculture can just go back to being forest again and prairie and, and habitat for wildlife. And we can feed everyone on a fraction of the land and heal ecosystems uh, and heal our psyches and heal our, our physical bodies. Our whole world can be healed uh, by this. So it's not just a critique of a very corrupt and obsolete system. We have a wonderful solution that's ever present. Yeah, anyone can do it. My wife, Madeline and I have uh, a little garden. We're growing, we have 70 fruit trees. We grow our own food. Everybody can uh, eat plant-based foods. It's much healthier. It takes far fewer resources of petroleum and water and land. We're, we'll easily be much healthier physically and psychologically and socially and environmentally and spiritually and we can reconnect with our purpose. And so the whole thing is to just see that the, in the bigger picture, animal agriculture drags us down and it's not necessary. Maybe 10,000 years ago, for some reason, people had to do that. We don't know why, but today it's counterproductive. The only reason anyone does it is because we're just following these old orders that are obsolete. And each one of us has the freedom and the power to say yes to compassion and sustainability and freedom. And when we do that, we make it better for everybody. Really. Mm. Well said. All right. I, I'm going to pick just a couple more questions and then I will let okay. you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably go. <laughs> so a lot of our listeners are highly informed, longtime vegans who are very nutritionally savvy. For these more educated vegans, what more nuanced suggestions do you have when it comes to food and taking health to the next level? Well, I think if you are nutritionally savvy, then you're eating plant-based foods that are organic. I mean, 100% organic. Nowadays, with glyphosate everywhere, we you know I don't we don't have the luxury. We Madeline and I never eat anything that's not organic. We that, uh, that's the line that we don't cross, and uh, that means pretty much we don't eat out in restaurants unless they can give us organic food. <laughs> so we grow our own. And, and, and so, so anyway, organic is really important and whole foods is very important. I, I, we don't eat foods. I mean, we eat a few, but not many that come out of a factory. We pretty much buy vegetables, fruits, grains, nuts, seeds, potatoes, mushrooms, herbs, and spices that are not in packaged form. They're uh, pretty much, um, we buy them as they are. We buy our own um, like, like spelt berries and we grind our own flour and stuff like that. Wow. With, you know, so, you know, I think, and we grow our own sprouts and we grow, grow, you know, our own, a lot of our own food ourselves, or we buy it at a farmer's market. We try to buy locally as much as possible. I think, you know, the more we can really connect with our food, the better, the more we can grow it ourselves. It doesn't take a lot of land, just a little bit, just a, like, you know, whatever, whatever you have, you can, you can devote, I think, to growing some or to at least to supporting local people. And then understanding that we don't need to eat a lot of protein. Now, a lot of people are, uh, you know, if, you're, if you've been on this for a while, you you're, you're understand that. But still, I think it's good to be aware that complex carbohydrates are really uh, the main source of energy, that was, which is what we need when we eat food primarily. And um, so to get plenty of complex carbohydrates, 
don't eat refined foods, right? I mean, we don't eat processed foods. We don't eat, eat very little oil, for example. It's and very little salt and sugar, a little, maybe, you know, a little salt's okay. Good quality salt. Um, have really good pan. If you're cooking food, uh, I mean, and a lot of people think that raw food is the way to go. And I think it, it's, it's helpful, but I would not say you need to be raw. I would say maybe half to two thirds is great. Uh, you know, but having uh, cooked foods, then make sure you have good pans. That's, a, that's something that a lot of, I know people who are chronically sick who got over their chronic illness by just getting good pans because most pans uh, have, are leaching toxic metals and toxic chemicals from the metals. Teflon you don't want, have aluminum, uh, glass, pyrex, they, they're all iron, cast iron, all that stuff, stainless steel. It's all leaching metals, so you really need to get surgery if, if you can. I mean, they're kind of expensive, but you only need a few good pans. Uh, Salad Master is one brand. Another brand is Healthcraft. I think there's a few others. They make it's, it's their surgical steel uh, with titanium, and they just don't leach anything, and they don't stick. Things don't stick. It's really good quality metal, and um, you know, and they'll last forever. I mean, you can give them to your great great grandchildren. They just they're really we have their eyes are 25 years old, and they look like brand new. So, um, so I think having really good uh, pans <laughs> is helpful. Uh, making sure you have, you know, you're, you're getting, getting rid of, I mean, you're protecting yourself from chemicals. I mean, these chemicals are everywhere. So that's why I mean the organic, also water filtration, air being, you know, having, if you have, if you live in an area, just be aware of all these things. And, um, and then of course, uh, the other things are, uh, making sure that when you're eating and preparing the food, you're not doing two things at once. A lot of people are eating while they're driving and doing all these other things and uh, or eating or preparing food while they're watching TV or listening to the radio. I think it's really good to get to food as a meditation and eat and have positive conversation and not while you're watching a movie or something else. It's better to really focus on the food and while we're cooking, while we're eating, and, and really make it like it was in the old days, a time for connecting uh, with nature, with each other, and a time for contemplation. Uh, it's worth it. I think it's really worth it to do that. And uh, we live in such a fast-paced society, which we're always doing two things at once, and our body isn't, isn't really like that. So to pay attention, do things mindfully, and the Zen, Zen monasteries, for example, they don't let the young monks prepare the food because their vibration and their, their irritation and so forth would make it difficult for the uh, everybody else to meditate. So only seasoned uh, spiritual practitioners are allowed to prepare the food in communities. And I think there's a lesson in that. You know, we can, um, we can prepare the food with, uh, with love and that energy of that awareness actually goes into the food and it makes, and it's important. And it's also important for us to, like I said earlier, really cultivate a lot of uh, harmony in our relationships because we can be eating totally healthy food and make and get sick because we're holding on to grudges and, and anger to other people. So that's also a form of uh, food, like what we're eating is our emotions and also what we're reading, what we're taking in. And that's why we don't watch, I haven't watched TV in 50 years. I just think staying away from TV and most mainstream media in general uh, is just going to be uh, filled with deception and lies and a lot of fear and negativity. Uh, connect with nature is a much better way to go.
Right. Hopefully right. that <laughs> Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. All right. Well, again, plenty more I would love to ask you about, but we can save it for, for the next time. Great. Um, All right. So anything, anything that we didn't cover or that we'd like to share that you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? No, but I really want to thank everyone for listening. I'm happy to stay in touch. Uh, worldpeacediet.com or willtuttle.com is where we have our tour schedule. We're in right now. And we're kind of touring around for four and a half months here and uh, doing lectures. We do we do that a lot every year. We have uh, we're doing it for many years. And actually, for years we lived on the road. For 17 years, we just lived literally in an RV and traveled. So we'd love to see you. If you come to, you can go to our website and see where we are. We'll be coming through Nashville where you are. Yes, Chrissy, March 23rd, 2023. Right. Can't right, wait. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's really been an honor to speak with you and to be able to share these ideas. And I hope we can do it again. Likewise, likewise. All right, we close every session by taking 30 seconds of silence for the animals. So, Will, I invite you to join me in 30 seconds of silence for all of the suffering animals, human and non-human, who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. And we'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Dr. Will Tuttle, and thank you, Posse. See you next time, and until then, stay strong and stay true.